0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to Talking Legal History. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Warren Miltier, Jr. is Assistant Professor of History at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. His research and teaching interests include U.S. history, especially focused on early America, the 19th century U.S., the U.S. South, free people of color, race and slavery, and Native America. Miltier was the recipient of the Historical Society of North Carolina's RDW Connor Award in 2014 and 2016 for the best journal article in the North Carolina Historical Review for his articles, From Indians to Colored People, The Problem of Racial Categories and the Persistence of the Chuan in North Carolina, and Life in a Great Dismal Swamp Community, Free People of Color in Pre-Civil War Gates County, North Carolina. Today we'll be discussing his book, North Carolina's Free People of Color, 1715 to 1885. Dr. Melts here. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation to speak.
1: To begin, could you briefly give an overview of the overall arc of your book? And could you tell us what a study of North Carolina in particular allows you to explore?
2: Yes. So my book, North Carolina's Free People of Color, 1715 to 1885, covers the history of uh population of free people of color. So these are people who were free during the period in which slavery was legal in the United States and in colonial America, who were of African descent and or Native American descent. And so this book focuses on their experiences from the colonial period to the Civil War. And then I also go a little bit into Reconstruction and talk about what happens to this population after uh, the Civil War, which is a topic that is rarely discussed in the literature about free people of color. So I really wanted to get at that. And so I'm focusing on two major issues in this book. One is about the status of free people of color. So what's their legal status? What's their social status? How are they treated by their neighbors in various parts of the state? But also, I'm interested in thinking about who exactly free people of color are, what does it mean to be a free person of color, both the part of being free, but also the part of being a person of color. That's something that hasn't been delved into quite as much in the literature. There are a lot of assumptions about free people of color, but I don't think people have taken the time to really consider how do individuals on the ground on a day-to-day basis determine who is white and who is a person of color, and then how they apply the law or their behavior to those individuals based on those determinations. So I discussed that quite a bit, especially in the early parts of the book. And just thinking about the status part too. So with status, I'm thinking about issues of not just race, but also gender and wealth and how those different forms of hierarchy impact the lives of free people of color and how they're being treated both under the law and by their
1: And what does a study of North Carolina in particular allow you to explore?
2: Right. So North Carolina, I chose to look at North Carolina for a couple of reasons. First of all, I had done some preliminary research on North Carolina before I started the book, but also because I think North Carolina is particularly important to the larger history of free people of color in the South as well as in the United States, more broadly so. As far as the South is concerned, North Carolina had, through most of the uh, period from, say, the 1790s to the Civil War, North Carolina had the third largest population of free people of color in the region. So only Maryland and Virginia had larger populations of free people of color. When you ask the average person about free people of color, they tend to think about Louisiana and New Orleans or Charleston, places like that. Actually, there were more free people of color in North Carolina than in those areas and so um, i decided that north carolina was important for that reason north carolina is also a good place to look at too because the archives are, are relatively strong compared to some other southern states the state archives in raleigh contain a lot of records about free people of color as well as some of the uh, more local repositories and repositories at some of the universities.
1: Okay, so building on your comment about the archives, what research methods did you use to build your history?
2: Okay, so as far as my research methods and how I conducted the research for this project, it was very extensive. So I had become interested in the topic of free people of color many, many years ago. And so originally, I was looking at free people of color and records related to them more for personal reasons than necessarily academic reasons. But by the time I uh, started to really research in a serious manner, I recognized that the archives, especially in the state archives in Raleigh, North Carolina, contained quite a bit of information that I thought could Potentially change our understanding of the larger story for people of color. And so I would say the vast majority of my research was done in that location. And the types of records that I was dealing with in the state archives mostly were records generated by local courts. So these would have been records such as minute books, apprenticeship records, criminal records, civil court records, occasionally newspapers. I use those as well. And then going beyond the archives in Raleigh, I also did quite a bit of research in Washington, D.C. at the uh, National Archives and the Library of Congress, especially the National Archives. The National Archives records that I used most were pension records. So pension records were one great source to get firsthand testimony about the lives of free people of color from free people of color. Those records often include statements either about military service, and often there's information about just daily life that comes out in um, pension records. So I I looked at pension records for the American Revolution to some extent, but I uh, probably focused more on the Civil War period. And the Civil War period records could provide information about the Civil War, which I talk about, but also things that were going on before the war and things that were going on after the war in the lives of free people of color. Other places that I did research included the library at East Carolina University, did some research at UNC Chapel Hill and Duke as well, Guilford College, and found a variety of records, mostly like personal collections were the the records that I looked at in those libraries. And so when you're thinking about personal collections, thinking about like record books from stores. So you can find free people of color in a record book about a store, find out what that individual was buying and it tells us something about their economic relationships with the people around them. Occasionally their personal letters that show up in these collections. And so the personal letter may be from a free person of color, but more often it's a white neighbor writing about the free people of color in the uh, community. And so I found those records particularly important, too. There's some company records with free people of color working for certain companies, and I I use those occasionally as well.
1: How do your research findings relate to previous works about free people of color?
2: Okay, so I guess we can look at this in two different ways. So the literature about free people of color, I, I guess there's a literature that you could say goes up until maybe the 1970s and 1980s. And then there's a period after that where there's not a whole lot going on. And then we have uh, a resurgence in research on free people of color in the early 21st century. And so we're thinking about that earlier period. Uh, key works would include John Oak Franklin's work on North Carolina, free people of color in North Carolina, or free Negro in North Carolina is the terminology he's using. And then Ira Berlin's slaves without masters, which is a key work in a synthesis that was published in the 1970s. And so in those works, there are a couple of things that are going on that probably that are just different from what I'm looking at. So one is, I think, in those works, there's an assumption about who free people of color are that I tried to challenge. And that is that the assumption is that free people of color are generally people of African descent. And in my research, I found that General understandings of the South, and North Carolina in particular, about free people of color also included Native Americans who were not considered parts of recognized tribes, say the Cherokees in Western North Carolina, they would be considered a recognized tribe. People who were outside of that in North Carolina were often lumped into the group free people of color. And so that's something that I take really seriously in my analysis to try to explain how that happened and why that happened. Also, when we're thinking about the legal status of free people of color, I think both Berlin and John Hope Franklin, they emphasize more of a decline in the status of free people of color over time. And I observed definitely some declines in certain areas of life for free people of color. But then at the same time, I try to highlight the pushback that came with some of that decline. So... There are political figures in North Carolina and the South more broadly who try to limit the various freedoms of free people of color. So anything from their ability to vote to their ability to sell liquor. And there are also more extreme attempts to curb the rights of free people of color. There are even politicians who are pushing for free people of color to be enslaved. And so those efforts, of course, fail. Free people of color in North Carolina are not enslaved. So I tried to balance the story of decline also with a story that shows that sometimes the most extreme things that uh, politicians came up with were not able to go through. And I think that's really important for us to understand uh, when we're thinking about free people of color's position in society, that there were people who were willing to defend free people of color who did not believe that necessarily free people of color were equal, but the idea of being equal and being slaves are not necessarily the same. And so their goal was not to necessarily have free people of color as legal equals to white people or white men specifically, but they weren't necessarily interested in denigrating the status of free people of color to the point that they were no longer free at all.
1: What does your book argue about the legal position of free people of color? And how does the term free people of color as a legal and social category intersect with categories such as race, wealth, and gender?
2: Okay, yeah, so in my work, I'm really trying to emphasize the importance of being free versus in contrast to being enslaved, and I think part of that is in response to some of the literature that I just mentioned where for instance, Ira Berlin has made the argument that Free people of color status was in some ways similar to that in enslaved people. And I'm kind of pushing back against that a little bit and trying to demonstrate that there is real value under the law for a person to be free. And in the case of North Carolina, we see that in a variety of different ways. So free people of color in North Carolina throughout the period are able to own property so they can buy and sell land pretty freely, other personal goods. They are able to uh, buy and sell freely with, with a few limitations, such as liquor, which is something that becomes an issue in the uh, early to mid-1800s, So that's being politicized that free people of color are not allowed to legally sell liquor. But generally speaking, they do have all these other freedoms. And so when you're thinking about where do free people of color fit relative to the position of white people in society versus enslaved people? I see more similarities in their status to that of white people than I do to the enslaved people. Enslaved people under the law are being looked at as property and free people of color don't have that status. Even when free people of color are being um, punished for crimes and lose certain liberties, they ultimately do have the ability to go to court and make complaints if they're being treated poorly. Now whether they get a fair hearing there, that's another question. But I still take seriously the fact that they do get a hearing at all. And some of the opportunities that they have just are not similar to enslaved people. And so I, I do make a case for that in my project. Also when you're thinking about their status in connection to wealth and gender, I try to emphasize how important that is. But I think another aspect of the lives of free people of color that hasn't been looked at as closely. There is some work about the lives of free women of color, but I'm trying to look at free women of color and how their lives make contrast with that of uh, free men of color or, or, or girls and boys and how their lives contrast. So that's something that I focus on quite a bit. And I also try to highlight the distinctions between free people of color based on their class or wealth. And so I show how wealthy free people of color are able to maneuver in society in ways that are different than poor free people of color. And often these differences between the wealthy people and the poor people are reinforced by the law. So, for instance, in previous scholarship, there's been quite a bit of discussion about apprenticeship laws and how apprenticeship laws either had a negative effect on the lives of free people of color or a positive effect on the lives of free people of color in a way that they provided training and education that people could then use to uh, improve their lives. People who are on the other side of that look at the apprenticeship laws and see how wealthy elites take on free people of color as apprentices and then basically use them as cheap labor source. And I saw examples of both of those. But what I try to emphasize in my work is that it's the poverty of certain free people of color that puts them in the place that they can be apprenticed at all. And I think that that's really key to understanding how that system works. So if you're an elite free person of color and you're not a woman, <laughs> which I should also throw in there. Your children are not likely to ever be uh, under the the local apprenticeship system. Now there are some issues if you are a woman, you if you're an elite woman, and your husband dies, your children then can not be taken away from you by the courts and apprenticed out. Whereas if you're uh, a man, that can't happen unless you're you're older for some other circumstance. The same situation applies to the the woman because she's the, the guardian while you're in jail. And then I guess I should go back to talking about gender a little bit more because that plays a really important role throughout the book. So again, when we're thinking about the law and how the law differentiates between different groups of people, gender is really important. And I think it's particularly important when we're thinking about voting rights. So many people may not know that Up until 1835, free men of color had the right to vote in North Carolina as long as they could meet property qualifications. So, again, there's the wealth part because the original North Carolina Constitution did not specify that only white men could vote. It it just uses the term free men. And so as a result, we have free people of color, free men of color specifically voting across the state. And in 1835, they lose that right to vote through a constitutional convention. But what is important in that is that when we think about voting rights and the loss of voting rights, we have to take into consider it was specifically free men of color that were affected by that. The status of free women of color did not change in 1835 through that law. And so when we're thinking about the
1: effects
2: of the 1835 law, it's not only a racial effect or a form of racial discrimination, but it's also saying something about the manhood of free men of color, right? And how their manhood is different than the manhood of white men in the state.
0: That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D.
1: So in Melvin Ely's work, Israel on the Appomattox, he uncovered, as you write, local disregard for state acts discriminating against free people of color in Virginia. In your research, did you find a similar divide between law on the books and inaction?
2: Okay, so yeah, I definitely observed situations where laws are not being strictly enforced. In a variety of different ways. One that comes to mind is laws about guns and gun ownership. So there are requirements that are passed in the early to mid-1800s that make it so free men of color, they're the only people I see actually getting gun permits, are supposed to go get a gun permit from their local court. And if they don't get a gun permit, their guns can be confiscated and they're supposed to be charged with a crime for not registering their guns. Now, there are cases where people are charged. Sometimes they're convicted, sometimes they're not. But you don't see the number of cases that you would suspect in society where guns are very much important for hunting and things of that nature. Of course, there are people who are always trying to get around the law when it comes to, say, the liquor production issue where it's illegal for free people of color to sell liquor. And then I think there are other areas as well, especially when we're thinking about court testimony, and there are other people who brought up this issue, thinking about Laura Edwards and her work in particular, where we see that free people of color and other people who don't have the same status as white men in society are able to find ways to be heard even when the law doesn't permit their voice to be heard directly. So in North Carolina, this is in the colonial period, free people of color are prohibited from testifying in court against white people. Yet there are cases where free people of color sue white people and are able to come out successful in those cases. And so it's clear from that, we don't always have the precise evidence to explain how they do this, But they're able to maneuver in the court system in such a way that they can win these cases and provide the evidence that's necessary to uh, win their suits. So the suits may be about property, often that's what it is, or they're owed a debt. At the same time, I should also say that there are people who complain that they're unable to get what they need from the courts and that when they sue their, because they can't testify, they are um, unable to get the debts that they were supposed to have fulfilled by the people who owe them. So it's it's not that there's no problem, but there are people who also find ways around the issues that we might assume that they're not able to uh, get around. And so that's an example of that. So yeah, I do think that there are definitely parallels between what Melvin Ely found in his research and what I found in my research. And I think that's, of course, really important because some of the challenges that have come to Melvin Ely's work are about the local nature of his work. And people ask, oh, well, is Prince Edward County, Virginia, just this... uh little utopian society and that outside of Prince Edward County, things operate differently. And I think my work and the work of a few others is starting to show that, indeed, these exceptions aren't necessarily exceptions, but to some extent, they're the rules of the society and how people operate it. And that's important because it shows that the people who are running the courts who are white people, white men... And other people in communities have some stake in what happens to free people of color under the law and in the courts, that they care whether there's some semblance of of justice. And I think, you know, you can look at that as both that they, they care for individual free people of color in their community, but they also just are concerned about the general function of the courts and making sure that you root out certain types of corruption in the courts. And, you know, they're successful to different degrees in different places. But overall, I would say yes, that there are paths for free people of color to sometimes overcome these harsh laws. And that's really important for us to recognize, both for the sake of history, but also for our own time, because we see things like this all the time where there are certain laws on the books. But those laws that are on the books are not necessarily a a pure reflection of what's going on in day-to-day life in our own communities.
1: What insights about law does your work uncover by studying shifting state-level legislation, local court proceedings, and legal institutions like marriage and apprenticeships in tandem?
2: I think one thing that I try to emphasize in this book is the importance of of politics and the development of the law, especially when I'm thinking about some of the previous work that's been done on uh, free people of color. So I'm I'm very curious in understanding why the law is contested, both at the local level and how people use it, but also how it's developed. And so I focus quite a bit on the contested part at the development stages. So I see where there are political figures who have made it part of their agenda to focus on free people of color, often as part of their larger agenda to strengthen slavery significance, both in the law and in society. They, they think they can benefit from that and maybe financially, but also politically and being able to build support for themselves. And so free people of color become their targets. And I'm interested in showing how sometimes they're very effective in pushing through certain measures, while in other instances, they're not. And, and not being successful, sometimes that means it takes them a long time to get things pushed through. But in other instances, they never are able to push through their extreme ideas. And one of those issues that I tend to focus on is about enslaving free people of color. They try over and over again for years to uh, pass laws that would permit them to enslave free people of color, and that's never possible. They're never able to get the full political buy-in on that, or even the disfranchisement of free men of color. That's something that shows up in the early 1800s as far as an issue, but it takes until 1835 for it to become a reality. And even the way that it was done in 1835 was in a I guess, uh, unusual manner. They had to go through this constitutional convention and the convention was called for something that really had nothing to do with, uh, disfranchising free people of color, but they end up being on the uh, agenda once the convention starts. And as far as thinking about marriage laws and the apprenticeship laws. So in North Carolina, I think this might be interesting to listeners that it takes until the 1830s for marriages between white people and people of color to be strictly outlawed. So in the colonial period, there were rules about intermarriage, but they were more like, they basically tried to discourage intermarriage versus completely banning it. And so We see that that's something that has to develop over time, that the politicians who want to, I guess, catch North Carolina up with other states that have strictly prohibited intermarriage, it takes them a while to build in buy in. And even when they do it, they write the law in such a way that they end up having to revise it. So part of what they do, they try to separate white people and free people of color and enslaved people. But they also try to separate enslaved people and free people of color from one another in marriage. So they don't want free people of color to mix with enslaved people. And eventually they get rid of or they they make that part of the law uh, less strict and require that free people of color get permission from the uh, people who are holding the enslaved people in bondage before they can marry them. Um, Of course, those marriages don't have any real standing under the law, but the law is still interested in trying to determine how people engage with one another, even when their marriages aren't legal Uh, (laughs) and, and, you know, recognized in the same way that a marriage between a a white two white people is is recognized or a marriage between two free people of color is recognized. And then thinking about the apprenticeship laws. Apprenticeship laws are interesting because it's a place where political figures are able to use class distinctions and racial distinctions together to attack a certain segment of free people of color. So originally when the apprenticeship laws were developed in the colonial period, Those laws require that free people of color as well as white people be given a certain amount of education, reading and writing skills, basic math skills as part of their apprenticeship agreement. But by the time we get into the 19th century, there's a lot of pushback against that. And so we see those rules evaporate that protect these guarantees for free people of color. So at a certain point, We get into the 1820s, 1830s, free people of color are no longer guaranteed the right to have an education as part of their apprenticeships, whereas now that's something specific to white people. So if you apprentice a white child out, that child is still supposed to be given an basic education. What's interesting is that at the local level, Some courts try to provide free people of color with something else to fill in for the lack of education that they receive. So often it might be a little bit more money or extra clothes, extra tools, something that they'll receive after the end of their apprenticeship. But overall, it's still important to recognize that apprentices who are coming mostly from poor families are targets of the more radical pro-slavery people of the time who are trying to overall denigrate the status of free people of color, and, and poor people in particular become targets of that. And adding to uh, the discussion of apprenticeship and how that changes over time is that there's a loosening of the rights of poor men, free men of color, and the rights over their families So the apprenticeship laws are changed in the 19th century so that children who are in a family with a mother and father, if the parents are are too poor, and that's up to the courts to decide or the justices of the peace to decide, that those children can be taken away too. And so the original apprenticeship laws of the colonial period only focused on women and their children. So unmarried women, widowed women, tended to be the targets of the colonial apprenticeship laws. And by the time we get into the 19th century, that's been expanded to uh, poor free men of color as well. So again, free men of color who are, are wealthy, slaveholding holding free men of color, you don't see them being targeted by these apprenticeship laws. But in a few cases, you do see poor free men of color who are Deemed unable to take care of their families, they're targeting their children are taken away. and of course, the problem for all groups of people who have their children taken away is that because they don't have the labor of their children, it often pushes their families deeper into poverty.
1: How did the law impact North Carolina's free people of color in the Civil War era? And I'm defining the Civil War era broadly here to encompass the lead up to the war and continuing into reconstruction and uh, relatedly, How was the legal status of North Carolina's free people of color affected by the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision?
2: So I have mentioned before that there were efforts to try to enslave free people of color or push them into slavery. So there are several politicians, mostly Democrats at the time of the 1850s, that are working diligently to um, have a more clear line between people of color and white people in society. And part of doing that would to be to force a free people of color into slavery. So what they want to do is they want to give free people of color a certain amount of time to either leave the state or if they choose not to leave the state for them to be enslaved, that's what these bills that they propose say. And time and time again, these bills that they propose are defeated in committee. They don't, they don't receive a full vote. And one of the reasons that's given for not accepting these bills and pushing them further through the uh, legislative process is that the free people of color are citizens of the state of North Carolina and that the lawmakers in these committees are concerned that if they were to push these laws forward that it would threaten freedom overall there's a status but also that it would be a challenge to the north carolina constitution and they believe that free people of color protected under that constitution as citizens of the state and so what happens over time is that these bills even though they're they're defeated the individuals who are their proponents one is named Lot Humphrey. He he proposes these bills multiple times into the Civil War period, and time and time again they're defeated. And so, by the time we get to the Civil War period, the Dred Scott decision has already come through the U.S. Supreme Court, and that decision suggests that you know free people of color um, and other people of color are not citizens of the United States. But what we see is that at the state level in North Carolina, that's not what the majority of people in the legislature think, and including Democrats. So to some extent, this is a um, internal debate within the Democratic Party, which is the more conservative party of the time, that there are Democrats who are not willing to go that far and um, say that free people of color are not citizens. I think they see that it's it's a slippery slope and it's something that they want to avoid. And as we get deeper into the Civil War and the Reconstruction period, uh, the status of free people of color changes in certain ways, especially when we're thinking about Civil War impressment and the role that Civil War impressment played in limiting the freedoms of free people of color. Now impressment is something that's not only targeting free people of color. White people are being impressed into the military, service white men, and people's property are being confiscated and all those kind of things. But when we're looking at impressment specifically of free people of color, free people of color are often being forced to work fortifications during the war. So they're digging trenches building breastworks, things of that nature. They're hauling things, uh, so military supplies, food, all that kind of, of work. And so that, I would say, is a, a significant change in the legal status of free people of color compared to the rest of the period, because during the war, we really see free people of color's ability to, to move freely being challenged. We see their ability to choose their own work being challenged. And those are things that free people of color had not dealt with to quite the same degree in earlier times. And then as we get into the post-war period, the laws that were developed to deal with free people of color are are seen as a model for white politicians immediately following the Civil War. So following the Civil War, the enslaved population is, is freed. And so these people want to figure out how are we going to deal with this mass of persons of color who are now free. And so their idea is to use these old laws that um, policed the behavior of free people of color in the pre-Civil War period. So they they um, want to continue a system where free people of color, as well as the formerly enslaved people, cannot speak against white people in court, can't testify against them in court. They want to continue certain types of social separation. So around marriage, they don't want white people and people of color to, to marry um, and so on. And so, of course, we see some of that stick that will stick for many, many years afterwards. But then the issues around testimony that eventually is challenged later in the Reconstruction period. But that's, that's basically where I, uh, I stopped. It was around the 1860s, 1870s period. And uh, one thing I should add, thinking about the situation of free people of color beyond the law specifically, is that the separate statuses that free people of color and slave people had definitely impacted how free people of color and their descendants saw themselves after the Civil War. So that difference in legal status and the benefits that free people of color were able to obtain because they had a higher status than enslaved people during the uh, pre Civil War period allow certain free people of color to continue to see themselves as different for years on after uh, the war. I would say well into the 20th century in certain cases where these free people of color and their descendants see themselves as distinct. And I think their, you know, if you look at their legal status in the pre-Civil War years, it makes sense why they might develop that idea that they are different, whether it's justified or not is, a, is another question.
1: Well, I really want to thank you for being on the show today.
2: Thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate this opportunity to speak with you and share my work with a larger audience.